0: for that warm welcome thank you uh, wawasee family for your welcome here today uh, again i'm colin seitz i am uh, pastoring at the free church in plymouth but also a regional superintendent here and uh, it seems to me that uh, i seem to make an annual pilgrimage here i think i was here last july uh while pastor josh was away or i think he was doing the lake service that day and so it's great to be with you all it's, it's fun to see you all in one place Uh, and so it's great to be with you. Got a question for you. I want you to think about this for a few moments, especially uh, those of you who are younger, and that is the question, how do you see people? Okay, now those of us who are older saying, I'm not talking about your glasses. Uh, Teen guys, I'm not talking about how you girl watch at school or at the local mall or teen hangout. I'm talking about how do you see people when you see them around our community, at the mall, at school, wherever you go, how do you see them? Interestingly enough, years ago, uh, Darwin said when he sees people, he sees advanced animals on the evolutionary ladder. Karl Marx said that uh, people are pawns in some economic social struggle between the rich and the poor. Sigmund Freud said that people are a bundle of conflicting psychological impulses that desperately need to find our true selves. Well, the whole question of how do you see people hasn't gotten any easier in our day, has it? When uh, Supreme Court nominees or important political figures can't answer the question, what is a woman? You know we're in trouble, right? Carl, uh, Carl Truman wrote a book called Strange New World And he tries to explain how is it that in a very short time we've come to where we can't answer the obvious. He writes, the modern self is one where authenticity is now achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. The modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. It also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this decision. So when someone says, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, we're all supposed to say, sure. And we look at them like, you sure look like a woman to me. Rather than disengage and become confused or run away from this topic, I think Jesus would want us as his followers to see people As he saw them. Do you remember reading through the Gospels how Jesus saw people? Jesus was widely known as a friend of sinners, a man who went about doing good, a person, a people person. When he saw people, he wanted to be with them. The scripture repeatedly says he had eyes of compassion, not judgment or condemnation, because he saw them as they truly were. And he also was a master teacher who skillfully taught his followers not only words of truth and wisdom from God, but also memorable stories, which are called parables. And that's why I love that Josh, Pastor Josh, had this idea of planning this summer series on the parables. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, Josh, in your handout, defined parables as a story intended to illustrate and to teach. And that's true. I also have found that these are unusual stories that Jesus told. In fact, I love what one Bible writer says, a parable is a stick of dynamite wrapped in a story, likely to blow up in your face. Because these are not bedtime stories. These are the kind of stories that when they are told, when you start thinking about them, they were meant to communicate powerful truth to those who were willing to respond but obscure truth to those who are, willing, who are refusing to come to terms with the truth. And so today we, we come back to a chapter in scripture that you looked at earlier last month, uh, this summer on Father's Day, when Pastor Josh preached on the parable of the prodigal son, which is he called the prodigal dad, in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. He took the most famous part, of Luke 15, but Luke 15 has often been called God's lost and found department because of the powerful impact of three parables that are linked back to back to back that he told about something being or someone being lost and then being found by a seeking individual, a shepherd, a woman, and a father. So I'm thankful that Pastor Josh has left me the two more memorable parables Uh, He said, well, you can teach about the the lost sheep, but also go ahead and do the lost coin, so I am. So I want to ask, invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, or open your electronic device. Find that passage in Luke chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses one through 10. And if you'll notice as you turn there, this section of 10 verses is divided into three sections. And if you're a note taker, you'll want to jot verses one through the first part of three, verses three through seven, and then verses eight through ten. And we're going to take a moment to do some good Bible study. Foundational for any study or any Bible study, is just good observation. What do we see here in this passage? So let's look first at the setting of these parables, verses one through three A. Let's read it together from verses one to three A. I'll read from the ESV. Now the tax collectors were all drawing, and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, "This man receives sinners and eats with them." So he told them this parable. Jesus has, if you look at the context in, in Luke, earlier in Luke 13 and 14, Jesus has been teaching about how different the values of God's kingdom are compared to this world. And that are the religious leaders of his day who are increasingly opposed to him because quite frankly, Jesus is saying things about them that they don't like. And it gets worse in these two parables. They are indeed dynamite wrapped in a story because as he, they hear the story, It doesn't take long for them to dawn on them who is who in this story. And so he begins a series of parables to vividly display key truths about God's kingdom that are more memorable, that make them memorable to his audience. And to those who would really listen and learn, they would be changed. For those who oppose it, they continue to be spiritually indifferent. So note the details in these opening three verses. First, there are two groups that are highlighted in Jesus' audience. First, a group that Luke describes as tax collectors and sinners. The second group, religious leaders who who resented Jesus' popularity with the masses and did not think it was proper to eat or even share table fellowship with people who were known sinners or non-religious types. Tax collectors who were viewed as collaborators with Rome lest in any way his eating with them would connote some kind of acceptance of them. So you have two groups that are addressed in the opening verses of Luke chapter 15. Tax collectors and sinners and the church crowd. Now, it's an interesting thing that, that Luke identifies these folks. I mean, think about who would be your comparable version of tax collectors today. Maybe the local motorcycle biker bar. Maybe it's, it's, it's some political group that you have a problem with. Whatever it is, Jesus says, I want to address truth to two unlikely group of people who have gathered to hear me. And there are two reactions that, that Luke notes in the opening verses of Luke 15. There are two reactions to his ministry. First, the masses, amazingly enough, were the ones that drew near to him to hear him. They were the more responsive and open to what Jesus had to say and they were responding eagerly to his words and his miracles that confirmed his identity as indeed the promised Messiah that God had promised. Curiously enough, the second reaction is noted as coming from the Pharisees and the scribes and he uses the word grumbling or murmuring. This man receives sinners and eats with them. In other words, we don't like this guy. It's interesting that it was, quote, the church crowd that Jesus oftentimes had the hardest and the worst time with. In some ways, he says, uh, I've got a prescription for you. You know, the doctor, oftentimes we go see him, he says, take two aspirin, call me in the morning, right? Jesus says, here's two parables. They're gonna blow up in your face, and let's talk and see how you feel afterward." You see, he told them these parables. Interestingly enough, the parables involved characters that he knew would offend one group over the other. You see, shepherds were considered an unclean profession by the religious leaders. They hung out with sheep. They smelled. They they missed the obligatory sacrifices oftentimes because they were providing the lambs for those sacrifices. And women, women, were considered of unreliable character in those days and less valued than men. Hence, they would not identify with the main characters of either one of these stories that Jesus tells, but he tells them anyways because he knows those, those uh, tax collectors and sinners would say, that's me. He's talking about folks like me. Jesus has a word for me today. You know, there's a lot of folks who assume that to be a Christian is to somehow clean up their life, go to church, miss out on all the fun that's got going on out at the lake today. Well, today may not be the best lake day, but you know what I'm talking about. And they miss the fact that Jesus has come after them, desires to have a relationship with them, and directs this story specifically to illustrate an important truth about how much God cares for them. So let's look, secondly, at these two lost and found parables Verses 3 through 10. First parable, verses 3 through 7. Follow along with me. And he told them this parable What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance." Well, note the details of Jesus' first parable. The shepherd in his day oftentimes had an average single flock of about 100 sheep. That was not unusual. But one of them had gone missing. And as he counted those sheep and brought them into the the enclosure, he realized I'm missing one. Now his attitude is important. He goes out, he leaves the open open field, or he leaves the enclosure with other shepherds to care for them. It's during the warm season. It's perfectly appropriate. But he goes after, he says, that's my sheep. Notice how the shepherd values that sheep. Sheep are a valued animal in, in agricultural areas. They still are to this very day. Just uh, last week, my wife and I, we went to, to the Marshall County 4-H Fair. Have you had your fair already in this county? Uh, have you ever noticed, gone to, the, the, to the, uh, the, the pavilions where all the animals are? Those animals are pampered. Those animals are cared for. Those animals are clean. Those animals are fed. They make sure the bedding is clean. They make sure everything is perfect. Now, yes, they're getting ready to be showed, and in some cases, to be auctioned off, They want them at their best. But it reminded me just how much people care for their animals and how important they are. And this particular shepherd said, that's my sheep. You know, there's a lot of time we we forget that when we're out in our community, when we're at school and we see people that we know who basically have basically said, you know, I don't have time for God, that what they truly represent, how God sees them as that's my sheep that's lost. That's someone I care for. That's someone that's on my heart. That's someone that's important to me. And and it's interesting what this shepherd does, that the safest way to transport that sheep was over the shoulders of the shepherd with their legs crossed over his chest, especially if they were too weak to follow. And it, it pictured what the psalmist said in Psalm 28, 9. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. It reflected the picture that Isaiah the prophet had of God when he wrote in Isaiah 40, 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So note, therefore that the shepherd said, this lamb is important to me. I will take every effort I can to find them and when I do, there is amazing joy. Three times in this parable, Jesus notes, rejoice with joy he found this lost land because this land was important to him. And there is a celebration. He doesn't just say, I'm happy. He says, the whole neighborhood's got to be happy. I wonder if what happens here at Sea Church, what happens at our church oftentimes when the word gets out that someone came to Christ this last week or got baptized, there's kind of this spontaneous clapping and celebration that goes on. Does that happen here? When you hear somebody found Jesus? Because you know what, we're we're just joining the angelic celebration that's already been going on when that happened. There ought to be a joy among God's people when they hear someone that God loves and they loved and maybe prayed for for who knows how long met Jesus and was found by him. That's the the imagery that that Jesus is trying to communicate to him. And his powerful conclusion to the story of a happy shepherd is this, verse 7. Notice that. Just so I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, group over here, than over 99 righteous persons who basically think or need no repentance. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? In some ways he's saying, I love all my sheep, but I want you to know when a lost one is found, when Jesus meets that individual, it sets off a celebration in heaven. And he wants you to know that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, over 99 people who think they're just fine with God. You know, it's been my experience as my wife and I share the gospel with people, that sometimes the hardest people to reach with the gospel are those who think, I'm fine. Uh, you know, it's, it's like a person who is out on a pier on Lake Michigan, and they see those occasional life rings that they put there to save people. And they're more decorative in their mind until a wave sweeps them off that pier, and they are desperately crying out, save me. And somebody tosses the lifeline. It's important to understand that Jesus is saying I want to save people, people are important to me. It's important that we see our friends and neighbors who have yet to find life in Jesus as those whom God is continuing continuing to pursue by the Spirit of God. And he invites us to help him reach them with the good news of Jesus. Well, as if the first parable wasn't enough, Jesus tells a second parable in verses eight through 10. Follow along with me. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently seek until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice the details of now the second parable of the lost coin or the, or the silver drachma, it was called. Notice it's interesting how the relative value of the items lost continues to increase. In the first story, it was one sheep out of 100, right? Second story, it's now one coin out of 10. The third story that Pastor Josh preached on was one son out of two. The value of that lost item continues to grow a drachma that he talks about here is a silver coin that was worth about a day's wages and the thoroughness of the woman's search impresses us because she lights a lamp she sweeps the house she searches diligently and she's not going to stop until she finds that coin so why, why the urgency? Why all that effort for just one loss? I mean, it's not that big. It looks big on the screen, but it's actually about the size of a dime or smaller. Well, there are several possible reasons. Bible students have, have looked at this and they said, well, it could be that she was a poor woman for whom losing a whole day's wage, which is what a silver drachma was worth, would put her and her family on the edge of real hunger and poverty. So to lose you know, a day's wage is a big deal but probably more likely are two other thoughts. One, it might be part of her marital dowry or what they call the Katuba Coins would be collected by girls as they grow toward marital age, and that would be the only money they could bring into the marriage that would be theirs even if the marriage dissolved. It was kind of like her dowry. Some of you may think of what, you know, you kind of just are planning for that day and it is a big deal. You get to 10 and you're saying, I'm ready come get me, oh, oh, godly man, and then she loses one. Ah! It's a a major catastrophe. I love what William Barclay, though, writes when he suggests what I think is maybe a closer and perhaps uh, accounts for her urgency when he writes, In Palestine, the mark of a married woman was a headdress made of ten silver coins linked together by a silver chain. For years, maybe a girl would scrape and save to amass her 10 coins, kind of like the other idea. For a headdress, that was almost the equivalent of her wedding ring. When she had it, it was so inalienable hers that it could not be taken from her for any debt. It may well be that it was one of these coins that the woman in the parable lost, and she is searching for it as if any woman would who would search if she had lost her marriage ring. Two years back, uh, my wife and I were home and she was uh, cleaning the oven, a thankless task, one that I probably should have done, but she was doing it. And in the process of that, as she got all done with it, she realized that the diamond had come off on her ring. Now, you know what? There was not gonna be peace in that house until it was found because so... Head in the oven, racks out. Flashlight comes in. We are looking, 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 looking. All of a sudden, as she sweeps with the flashlight, she sees a flash. And way in the corner, in those crevices, she found the diamond. Her husband was relieved. Her his wife was rejoicing. As this woman does when she found the coin. Do you understand what that means to a woman who said, I, This is important to me? And Jesus, by she sweeps with the broom, she's hoping to use that to get the, the, the coin out of some crevice that had somehow got in its way. But in that case, she is not going to stop until she finds it. And notice how Jesus wraps up this second parable in verse 10. In the same way, there is rejoicing over a repented sinner, but there's no mention of the self-righteous in that second parable. See, Jesus encourages us to keep seeking out the lost with the reminder of the celebration and joy that comes when they are found by him. I wonder how many of us persist in prayer for and persist in our witness to our non-Christian neighbors and friends like this woman does. Uh, We live in a day when we are told don't talk about politics and don't talk about religion. And yet, that's the message, that second message of faith in Jesus Christ that is so essential. That's why we need to look at one final point in regarding these two parables. And that's where the, the, the story begins to explode because we, have, we need to respond to Jesus' powerful teaching about the lost and the found. You see, these parables blow up in the face of the self-righteous who say, well, you know, <coughs> they're bad people, you know, just let them go. And uh, for some of you who uh, were maybe my age or a little younger, Saturday mornings was cartoon time. Do you remember the Roadrunner and Wile Coyote? Any of you remember that? You remember how often Wiley Coyote uh, would hand or Roadrunner would hand Wiley a piece of dynamite with a fuse lit and it would go kaboom. Well, this is what's going on at this point in Jesus' interaction with these people. Those Pharisees and those religious leaders are saying they're talking about us. And not in a very positive way. And the sinners and the and the taxpayers are going, yeah. God loves us, he's after us, he wants us. You see, Jesus teaches the crowd in us, a key lesson as to how we ought to see people as God does, as those who are lost and needing to be found by him. People who are valued by God. There is nobody too far gone for the grace of God. There isn't. Some of the most unlikely people have found Jesus and their lives have been transformed. And a lot of them are right here in this room and standing before you. It's the kindness of God. It's that relentless love of God that keeps chasing us down. Sinners know that they need God's grace to be forgiven and they see their need for a savior to be found and saved. They, they repent. They will say, I was wrong, and they look to Jesus. Righteous people who think they don't need repentance don't think they're lost, and they think they're fine. I thought that for a long time. I grew up in a religious home, but I didn't know Jesus. I was taught, and I thought, that if I did all the prescribed religious rituals, went to church, kind of mumbled through the hymns. I was good with God. I was good to go. And then over a course of time, God began to work on my heart to say, you know, sitting in a garage will not turn you into a car. Neither will sitting in church make you a Christian. You need a heart change. You need to be born again. And it took a long time, I was kind of slow at that, 18 years old before I understood that I needed the Savior. Don't wait that long, you you miss out on so much. But righteous people oftentimes are the ones who think, I'm fine, I don't need that life preserver. I'm not drowning, and Jesus says, you're in worse shape than you realize. So I find myself asking, if you were in that crowd, and you heard these stories, which do you think you would most identify with, the publicans and sinners or the religious crowd? Which are you? Some of us just need to have a real dose of honesty and humbly saying, you know, if I start walking through those 10 commandments, it won't take long before I realize, oops, I don't do that one. And then when I remember what James writes in James 2.10, that whoever breaks the law in one point is guilty of it all, We are all sinners, we all need the savior. We all have the same spiritual cancer called sin, but there's a tendency for us to kind of ignore that and put that out of our mind until we're compelled by reality or things happening in our life to acknowledge, Lord Jesus, I really made a mess of things and I need you. So we need to understand that Jesus is coming after people and he sees people through eyes of compassion, not as sinners, but as people who need the Lord and who are valuable to him. But there's a second lesson here, and that is there is a tendency for us, the church crowd, to separate from people we think are unlike us, to note we, and note the grumbling of the religious leaders. They didn't like those folks. And I need to be honest, in these days, as things are getting a little weirder out there in our culture, There are more and more people I find myself saying, I I am really uncomfortable around them. I'm not sure I'd like to go to a party with them. I think we need to be honest and say, I understand those feelings because I feel that way. but, But that's not what Jesus is calling us to not to our comfort, not to our safety, not to isolate and, and become a safe and safe huddle with like-minded friends and wait till Jesus comes again. That's why I love what Daryl Bach, who wrote the commentary on, on Luke's Gospel from Dallas Seminary, writes, God does not want believers to isolate themselves from the world to such a degree that they never relate to the lost. God is constantly among people, especially people who do not know God. And he's constantly seeking them. This passage says much about the heart of God in engaging those who are not interested in him. He cares enough for them to go looking for them. The search is not always easy, but the joy at the end makes the effort worth the cost. In in other words, lost people matter to him. Our friends that we're praying for don't stop. Our friends that say, you know, I I know you, you go to church, but don't bring that up there comes a point in time when you may need to say, for the risk of of alienating you, I need to share a few things with you. You see, Jesus in Luke 19, as he wrapped up this series of parables, he said this, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, we don't like, a lot of our lost friends don't realize they're lost. They were made in the image of God They've fallen into sin. We all have. And they think they're okay. And God is saying, there's an urgency here. There is a spiritual cancer running through your veins that unless there is an intervention, you will perish. God wants us to be his servants to call sinners like we once were back to God and frankly start an angelic celebration in heaven. That's what he's asking us, to be uncomfortable, to overcome our initial reluctance, to hang out and do things with people. That's why I love what you guys do here in the summertime where you send your pastor out bravely to go to the do the lake service. Now, that's a crowd. That's an interesting crowd. But you know what? You're sending servants out because you love them. Bottom line, uh, we need to have a sense of urgency. Why? Uh, Well, because Jesus doesn't affirm. Most people think that if they're, quote, a good person, that the automatic default is that they go to heaven. We have a dear friend that we've been sharing Christ with for a number of years when we lived in South Bend. They moved up north to the UP. We moved down to Plymouth. But we stay in touch, and just, just this week, we received word that her dear mother had passed away in Florida. Our friend posted a lovely picture of the couple, of her mom and dad who are now both deceased, and she with every confidence said, now my mom's with my dad in heaven. And I'm going, (sighs) because as best we know, mom had no time for God or church or the gospel. Basically, she was a good person. I want to remind you that in Matthew chapter 7, some of the most sobering words that Jesus ever said were these. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard to those that lead to life, and those who find it are few. What Jesus is saying there with a broken heart, if you will, is that that the narrow road that leads to life in heaven is available to all who will believe in him, but only a minority will find it. And when they do, the party breaks out in heaven because too few of people seem to have found their way to God. But the other road that the majority will choose is a wide and easy way that that leads to destruction because it's the way that seems right to our natural minds. C.S. Lewis in his book Problem of Pain described it this way. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Why did the majority choose that way? Well, in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, our favorite verse, which we sung part of, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, what? Shall not what? Shall not what? Je- Loving Jesus, who goes after people, said that? Yeah, he warns us about that. But he goes on to describe, but have eternal life. But God did not send, notice, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, found. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And then he ends in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, they're found. Whoever does not obey or believe in the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Why? Because they still have the spiritual cancer and refuse to take the cure in Jesus. They've not been found. Years ago, there was a song that, whenever I hear it, it would just break my heart, and it was called, People Need the Lord. Remember that one? It was a very plaintive song where Steve Green would talk about On they go through mindless pain, uh, living fear to fear. Um, And they're talking about shallow lives, but then the chorus always is, people need the Lord. When will they realize that people need him? In the power of the Holy Spirit, God has given the found, by the grace of God, many of us here, that shepherd is missing a sheep That woman is missing a coin and they will not quit searching until they find that one. And we need to give that same kind of energy and effort to share the good news with Jesus. Oftentimes it will be people that God has already put in our life. It's those that we work with. It's those that are at school with us. It is those that are our co-workers. It is those in our neighborhood. So we don't have to go far to find lost people. But we do need to open our mouths, to pray in advance, and take the risk of offending someone uh, momentarily uh, for the joy of knowing that they might respond in a positive way. You know, I've been to funerals. I've been to happy funerals where the person was well-known as a Christ follower, and we knew where they were. I've also been to the other kind, haven't you? Where you find people saying, well, you know, they weren't really a religious person. they, they really didn't. But boy, they are desperate to try and get them into heaven. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes, it's open to everybody, but whoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We're the ones who have that message. So I encourage you, just in a very practical way, as we kind of wrap it up this morning, to ask God for that continued sense of urgency like that shepherd and like that woman for those you believe, and not flawlessly, but as best you can tell, God would label at this moment would see them as lost. And I would challenge you to consider doing what my wife and I have started doing in recent years and that is we begin the day with prayer and one of the things we pray for is Lord, would you give us an opportunity to share your love and your truth, the gospel truth, with someone today whom you have prepared in advance by your Holy Spirit to be part of the process of leading them to our shepherd. And and, uh, it's amazing, it's almost like priming the pump. If you prime your, your spiritual pump and you're saying, Lord, I'm ready, it's amazing how many people you find and we have found who it may be a checker at the store and there's nobody around. That's a pretty slow day. And you ask him, hey, how are, how's life going for you? Or do you have any interest in, you know, whatever you're, you've come up with a good opening question. And we, we use a lot of gospel booklets and tracts that explain the gospel. Sometimes we're not real articulate in remembering everything. So we say, hey, have you, can I just give this to you? And I'd really like your, your opinion or, and just kind of walk them through it if you have time. If not, just... Pass the seed of God's word to others and then pray. A lot of times, we go back to the same store and they recognize us and they go, I remember you. And it's interesting to see how many say, no one's ever told me this before. I've never heard this message. And we're going, wait a minute, this is America. Isn't everybody here the gospel? Haven't they all heard Billy Graham? Well, no, not anymore. Didn't they go to Sunday school? Not anymore. So we live among friends and neighbors who need the Lord. And we need a fresh vision from God to see people like our Savior does, as people who need Jesus lest they perish. And we need a fresh motivation from God to say, Lord, I'm I'm willing to to risk offending somebody. Uh, I'd rather do it now and offend them than stand at their funeral someday and be guessing, oh, I should have. I should've, should've, should've. I close with this illustration. A number of years ago, my my wife and I visited my dad who lived in the Detroit area, and he was on wife number three. Um, And they kept dying on him, which mean the last one was the final one, and her name was Kathleen. She was a wonderful lady. Uh, My dad would always find his sweethearts at the YMCA dances. I don't know why that was the case, but he did. And he did indeed find wife number three there. And sure enough, as we got interacting with her, we found out that she came from a certain religious background. But we weren't sure where she stood with Christ. But God impressed on our hearts, man, Kathleen is getting, she's in her 90s. And we don't know how, off, how much longer we're going to have to share with her. So I took my dad off somewhere, distracted him, my wife, who's the family evangelist, had the opportunity to share the gospel with Kathleen, and she responded to the gospel. She lived to over 100 years old. But how thankful we were that on that day when we attended her funeral, we could say, as best we know, Kathleen had responded to the good news of Jesus and had been found. It made all the difference in the world. You've got folks that you love and care for too, don't you? I know you do and you want to see them in heaven, don't you? I do. You have that same sense of urgency like that woman who lost that coin. I got to find it. Then let's ask God to help us and prepare us to be his servants to share the simple message of Jesus with them. Okay? Would you bow with me in prayer as the band comes, and we're going to wrap things up this morning.